The Nats Chat Podcast Party is coming up Friday, October 13th from 6.30 to 8.30 at Walters. Just like last year, we'll be hanging out, chatting baseball, and watching sports. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Swung on, ripped to left, tore the line. If it's high enough, it's gone, and it is. A game leadoff home run for Ronald Acuna Jr. And now he's a 40-60 player. 40 home runs, 68 stolen bases. Now the pitch. This made a blast to deep right center field. This is trouble. Young back on it. It's over his head, and it is gone. It just clears the big wall in right center for a three-run homer. Braves have busted it open. They lead it nine to four. We can go on and on about Sean, but personally, he's been unbelievable. He really has. He, um, just up to this point, he's been uh, a constant friend more than anything. Forget about the, the, the fierce competitor he was and the, the closer that he was and what he meant to, to the city and baseball. And welcome to Nats Chat for Saturday, September 23rd, 2023, along with MadisonSports.com Nationals insider Mark Zuckerman, who was at Nationals Park. I'm Al Galdi, host of the Al Galdi podcast. Well, here's how busy of a Newsday Friday ended up being for the Nats. The team did not even officially announce a major move. So much was going on with the Nats on Friday that uh, the team ended up forgetting <laughs> to announce a, a significant roster transaction. Jake Irvin's season is done. We, during the game on Friday night, as uh, Joe LaSorsa was warming up, found out that the Nats earlier in the day had recalled LaSorsa from AAA Rochester and had put starting pitcher Jake Irvin on the 15-day injured list, right ankle tendonitis. Also before the game was big news, reliever Sean Doolittle announcing his retirement, and we had the announcement of the 8th annual end-of-season Nationals Awards, as voted on by members of the local media, like Mark Zuckerman. And then we had a game, a game that the Nats did lose. A 9-6 loss to the Major League leading Atlanta Braves at Nationals Park. Nats now just 7-18 and over their last 25 games. Now for the season are 68-87. and And then seconds after the game, the Nats announced that Game 3 of this four-game series against the Braves postponed due to rain. A smart, proactive move given that uh, the Washington, D.C. area is being pounded by rain on Saturday. We'll have a day-night doubleheader on Sunday with games at 1.35 p.m. and 6.35 p.m. Mark, you cover this team for a living. There was quite a bit to keep track of as uh, Friday went on. 
I appreciate the recap you just gave there, Al, because I kind of needed a refresher <laughs> to remind myself of everything that happened over the course of this day. Yeah, it was a lot, and a lot of it had very little to do with the game itself. A busy day. Most of it I wouldn't exactly call very positive news, although I appreciate how Sean Doolittle turned his retirement into a positive thing. And a guy that you never know how these things are going to go, thought he might get emotional with it and, and be, you know, show how disappointed he was at the way this ended. And instead, he was all smiles and he really wanted to view this as a celebration of his career and now an opportunity for him to move on with whatever else he wants to do with his life in both baseball and outside of baseball. And so what could have been, I think, a sad day in a lot of ways, I think turned into more of a, an upbeat, happy day in large part because of the way Doolittle approached it. Yeah. I mean, if you don't know Sean Doolittle, he's an upbeat person. He's a positive person. He's a happy person. And uh, you certainly got that sense with how his uh, retirement was handled on Friday. Lots more on Doolittle coming up on the show. In terms of this game against the Braves on Friday night, Really an aggravating game from a Nats standpoint. You know, the Nats gave up nine runs. The pitching wasn't particularly good. But the Nats in this game put guys on base and generated hits. Six runs, 10 hits, six walks, but one for 16 with runners in scoring position. Offensively speaking, the Nats were actually keeping pace with the Braves from a standpoint of getting hits and getting on base. Each team finished the game with exactly 10 hits. The Braves have this monstrosity of an offense, but the Nats in this game were right there, but could not come through with runners in scoring position. It was bizarre. Most of the night, like if you didn't look at the scoreboard, it just felt like the Braves were running away with it. And then you look up at the scoreboard and you say, boy, they're only a couple hits away now from being right in the thick of this thing and tying it up or even taking the lead. They just could not get that hit when they needed it. It's kind of a minor miracle. They scored six runs with only one hit with a runner in scoring position. They drove in runners when they were on first base because of a bunch of doubles and triples, and they had some productive outs along the way. But boy, it just was not there for them in the right moments. And on a night when their starter lasts one inning because of an injury himself that all of a sudden puts Charlie Morton's roster status heading into the playoffs in question. So you're getting a bullpen game. And there was an opportunity there for the Nationals to score a bunch of runs and actually emerge on top. And that they didn't, I think, was very frustrating for a lot of people. Yeah, Dominic Smith on Friday night, 0 for 3 with runners in scoring position. K. Bert Ruiz, Lane Thomas, Ildemaro Vargas, Jacob Young, each going 0 for 2 with runners in scoring position. That did get some nice production from C.J. Abrams and Jake Alou. Abrams on Friday night as the Nats starting shortstop and number one batter. 2 for 4 with a two-run double, a single, a walk, an RBI ground out, and a stolen base. He did commit a throwing error, but Abrams in the bottom of the first, a leadoff walk and to steal a second base. Abrams in the Nats, one run third, a leadoff opposite field single through the left side of the infield on an 0-2 pitch. Abrams in the Nats, one run six, a one-out RBI ground out, and Abrams in the Nats, two run eighth, a two-out first pitch, two-run double to right field to cut the Nats deficit to 9-6. So Abrams continues to have this very good month of September. Abrams for this month, has an on-base percentage of 346 and a slugging percentage of 522. But how about the walks? I brought this up the other day. C.J. Abrams now, for this month of September, has drawn 12 walks. He, for the season, has drawn 32 walks. Nearly half of his walks for the season have been drawn in September. This is such an encouraging development, but this really is odd. You don't see this often, a guy drawing basically half his walks in a season in the final month of a season. 
No, it is bizarre, but a very positive development. And I think even bigger in some ways than the stolen bases, than the home runs and all the other good things he's done, not to diminish those. Those were important. But really in the bigger picture, I think this shows a lot of growth from him. If you're going to make it as a leadoff hitter in this league, and we know he has all the ability to do that, you have to get on base at a higher clip. He was not that long ago sporting a sub 300 on base percentage. That's not going to cut it for a leadoff. It's not going to cut it for anybody, but certainly not for a leadoff hitter. And it's kind of amazing that he had as many stolen bases and done as much else as he has with such a low on base percentage. So the fact that he is finally showing some patience, drawing his walks, looking to draw walks at times, that was kind of like the last little piece of the puzzle in a lot of ways. I know you want to see consistency month to month has been very up and down, but if he could end this month really showing that kind of plate discipline and then going to next year and combine that with the power and the speed, you've got a really nice combination. We got to remember, he's still young. This is still his first full big league season. There's been legitimate growth from him over the course of the year. That's all you can ask for. You're going to get to the end of the season and say that C.J. Abrams was a better player at the end of the year than he was at the start. And I think that's huge. It is. And our conversations April through June were along those lines of it's not good right now, but where is he at August, September? That's what matters. And where he is at in those months, quite good. And so it's been really good to see that. Jake Alou, I mentioned him. So he on Friday night was an ad starting left fielder and number eight batter. Two for two with a triple, a single, a walk, and an RBI sack fly. I want to highlight the triple because this was something. One run, that six, a leadoff triple on one of the weakest balls you will ever see result in a triple. Vines delivers. Swing a looping line drive right side. It is fair inside the line. This is going to roll against the sidewall all the way to the corner. Alou stinking three as Acuna just picks up the ball. Alou racing for third. He's going to be in there with a stand-up triple. This was a weekly hit ball that rolled slowly all the way to the right field corner. The triple had an exit velocity of just 79.2 miles per hour per stat cast. He got the triple despite having been down at 1.12. So good piece of hitting by Lou. But I don't know that I've ever seen anything like that. A slow roller that took about an hour and a half to get down to that right field corner. But it goes down as a triple. There was some weird stuff in this game out. Triples, doubles, stolen bases, a lot of bizarre stuff happening. It felt in some ways like two teams kind of going through the motions to try to just get through this game, knowing the rain was coming and all that kind of stuff. But it counts as a triple. Good for him. I mean, they were, again, there's a lot of things they did not do well offensively in this game, but they did hit for extra bases. (laughs) They were hitting triples and doubles. They ran the bases pretty well. There was stuff to like there. They just couldn't kind of combine them all in the right way at the right times to make that turn into more than the six runs they scored. Luis Garcia on Friday night as an ad starting second baseman, a number six batter, two for five with a double and a single, each hit an opposite field hit. So Patrick Corbin was an ad starting pitcher for this uh, 9-6 loss to the Braves on Friday night. Five runs in four and a third innings. He gave up five hits, two home runs, a double, and two singles. He issued a walk, uh, recorded just one strikeout, 68 pitches, 40 strikes versus 28 balls. Top of the first, he allowed three runs on two home runs. He gave up a leadoff full count home run by 
Ronald Acuna Jr. to left field, uh, despite Acuna having been down at 1.02. The home run, Acuna's 40th homer of the season. He becomes the first major league player to have at least 40 home runs and at least 40 stolen bases in a season since the Nats' Alfonso Soriano in 2006. That really is something. That stat has been brought up quite a bit in recent days, so I don't know that that is like stunning a bunch of people listening to this. But boy, that Soriano was the last 40-40 guy. You know, when I first heard that a few days ago, that surprised me. I was like, wow, really? Nobody had done that since Soriano? Yeah. And then Corbin gave up a two-run home run by Austin Riley on a bomb to left field on an 0-2 pitch for a 3-0 Braves lead, 434 feet per stat cast. You could say that that first inning set the tone uh, for the Nats pitching in this game. Yeah, I mean, look, they're facing the best lineup in baseball, obviously, and that is a huge challenge. When you dig yourself into a 3-0 hole, three batters in, Homer, walk, Homer. Again, it's kind of a miracle they were really in this game most of the way in spite of that early start and all the struggles with it. And I don't know, if you're Patrick Corbin, I don't know what else there is to try to do. He he fed Acuna a steady diet of sliders in that first at bat. I think he started him off with three straight because everybody knows Acuna's looking for a fastball right off the bat. And he finally on the sixth pitch threw him another slider and put it over the plate enough that Acuna drove it to left field for the home run. It is amazing that there haven't been more players at least challenging 40-40. It's not like there's been a lot of close calls either, I feel like, in recent years. Maybe it's a product of the stolen base having sort of disappeared from the game in the last 15 years until MLB changed the rules and obviously helped things out. It'll be fascinating to see now, moving forward, does this become more of a regular thing? Or is this still really this rarefied air where only five players have ever done it in history, and some really big names. You're talking about Jose Canseco, Barry Bonds, Alex Rodriguez, Alfonso Soriano, and now Ronald Acuna. And it does take a particular set of skills that very few players have that combination of skills. Maybe the new rules will help encourage some more stolen bases. But I looked at it today. There are only six players in the majors with 40 steals this year. So it's not like Everybody is doing this. And in Acuna's case, he's like in his own class because he's not in the 40-40 club. He's in the 40-60 club with still a shot at the 40-70 club when it's all said and done. So truly a remarkable thing and a remarkable player. And he's just one of a bunch of amazing hitters in this Braves lineup that we saw on display in this one. And we're going to see a lot more. And here's really the bad news for the Nationals and Patrick Corbin. It's got one more start this year, and it's going to come against the Braves next weekend in Atlanta. How's that one going to go? Yeah, maybe Acuna gets to 50-80 in that game against Corbin. Who the heck knows? Ronald Acuna entered play on Friday, number one in the majors by quite a bit in offensive war per baseball reference for this season at 7.9. That is not his uh, total war. That is his offensive war. His total war actually is a little less than that. Defensively, he gets penalized a bit, 7.8 total war. But geez, a 7.9 offensive war on the season. So Corbin did as he did on Friday night. And the Nats bullpen in this game, four Nats relievers combined to allow four runs in four and two-thirds innings. Jordan Weems officially allowed one run in two-thirds of an inning. He and the Braves two-run fifth face five batters, got just two outs. Robert Garcia did toss a scoreless top of the sixth. Andres Machado in the top of the seventh gave up a two-out three-run opposite field home run by Marcelo Zuna to right center field for a 9-4 Braves lead. And then we had, yes, the uh, return of Joe Lasorsa, who pitched well, two perfect innings, 
with two strikeouts. But like I said at the top of the show, (laughs) this was something we, during the game, found out that the Nats earlier in the day had recalled LaSorsa from Rochester. Okay, I mean, that's not going to floor people that Joe LaSorsa is back. But the corresponding roster move was the Nats putting Jake Irvin on the 15-day injured list with right ankle tendonitis. So this is significant. Irvin's season is done. I guess what now with the Nats rotation moving forward? We've talked about what could happen with Trevor Williams. He's going to make at least uh, one more start, I guess, now. We know that Jackson Rutledge will be pitching the final game of this series, which will be happening uh, Sunday evening now. But uh, I guess, is Thaddeus Ward still an option, or is that off the table at this point? There's a lot still to be determined. The rain out, of course, changes things. So I know Davey Martinez and Jim Hickey were going to work on that late on Friday night and figure out where to go. And I haven't done the math through yet myself. You know, they're getting an off day now, Saturday, a doubleheader Sunday, an off day Monday, two games in Baltimore, an off day Thursday, and then three in Atlanta. So they probably can get by without all those starters and they can probably get away without actually replacing somebody like Irvin and maybe come back with Williams at some point for one more start in there. Again, I haven't really scribbled it out on a calendar, but I think they should be okay. I don't necessarily get the sense that Thad Ward's going to get a start. Maybe he will. Another bit of news that came out on this day, they announced the Arizona Fall League rosters, and Thad Ward is one of the eight players going there to Arizona. The other seven are all minor leaguers, including Robert Hassel, the third, Israel Pineda, DJ Hers, one of the players they got in the Jamer Candelario trade. I thought it was interesting and, and a little bit rare for a guy who essentially been in the big leagues all year. I know he was hurt and and spent time on minor league rehab, but for essentially a big leaguer to go to the fall league doesn't happen a lot. They want him to get more work. They want to work him as a starter there. Just reading between the lines, it sounds like they feel like he's still got some stuff to do and they're not real confident where he's at right now and maybe don't want to throw him out there in a meaningful major league game as a starter. Anyone who you thought would be playing in the Arizona Fall League who will not be playing in the Arizona Fall League or not really? I wondered if Dylan Cruz would because that's kind of a sign of just how close to big league ready a guy is or a team thinks a guy is. But I can understand this. Look, he played a whole season at LSU, won a national championship, signed and went straight to the minor leagues and played single A up to double A. I could understand why they just want to give him a break and not feel like they have to throw even more baseball his way. You know, like Bryce Harper went and played there after his first full minor league season. It was a little different in that the deadline to sign back then was late. It was in August and he didn't actually play that year. It wasn't until the following year. So in Cruz's case, it is still the same year that he was drafted and played throughout the college season. So I I get that. It would have been cool to see how he stacked up against top prospects, of course. But I understand why you don't want to throw any more baseball at him than you had to this year. No, otherwise, I mean, Hassel has been there before, but he got hurt in the first week of it. That's when he broke his handmate bone. So it's a chance for him to go back there. A lot of times this is used for players who need some extra work in addition to top prospects and give them a chance to face other top prospects. So not really any surprises there. I think it's one of the better groups they've sent there in a while. Evidence of how far the farm system has come, but not all of their top guys, though. 
All right. And before we get to Doolittle, I mentioned the uh, end of season awards uh, as voted on by you guys in the local media. So Lane Thomas, once again, second consecutive year is your Nationals Player of the Year. No surprise there. Kyle Finnegan was named Pitcher of the Year and Josiah Gray got the Good Guy Award, which is given to the player for his uh, professional dealings with members of the media work in the community and uh, representation of the Nats organization. So what always matters with this stuff is when the voting took place. So we have seen Finnegan fall off here lately. When was the voting done for this? The ballots were due a week ago at the start of the week on Sunday. So that was kind of right as Finnegan was starting to have some struggles. Remember, he gave a Grand Slam Saturday in Milwaukee. I can't speak to what others did. I think some ballots were in prior to that point because they were handed out a week prior to that. So everyone had a week to consider it. And maybe some turned them in right away. I will reveal that on my own ballot, I waited until that last Sunday to do it. And Finnegan's struggles did play a factor in my decision. I gave my vote to Hunter Harvey. And it's not a knock on Finnegan, who for a huge chunk of this year was clearly their best pitcher, one of the best relievers in baseball, a sub two ERA for like four months and a 0.6 whip, I think, in that time. He was phenomenal for a very long stretch of time. But when you take the season in totality and you compare the two, Hunter Harvey has a lower ERA by a significant margin, a much lower whip, and actually more strikeouts than Finnegan has despite throwing fewer innings. Now, yes, he missed some time with an injury and I had to consider that, but it's, I think, 10 appearances is the difference between the two of them. So it's not a huge number maybe nitpicking a little bit. It would be nice if we could wait till the end of the season, but they wanted to do this prior to the end of the final homestand so they could honor them at the game. Close call, but to me, I personally felt that Hunter Harvey in the end had the better season in totality. Not a knock on Finnegan at all, who unfortunately the start to his year and the end of his year have kind of made the final numbers not look as good as they probably should be. Kind of funny, Josiah Gray not even coming up. I mean, he was the Nats' lone all-star, had the really good pre-all-star break portion of the season. I mean, to me, I would go with Gray just because starter versus reliever. And, you know, it's not like he's had a bad season. It has fallen off. You know, I was looking at the history of uh, the Nationals Pitcher of the Year award. A starter has not won this since Max Scherzer in 2020. What does that tell you about Nats starting pitching in recent years? Finnegan won it in 21. Erasmo Ramirez, no longer on the team, he won for last season. And now Finnegan wins again for this season. Yeah, it does tell you a lot about rotation. I hope, and I think a lot of people hope, next year a starter will be clearly worthy of it. I did consider Gray, and is another one of those, like, if we were allowed to wait a little bit longer, if he has a really good start next week in Baltimore, gets the ERA under four, it does kind of look a lot better to say, well, had an ERA in the threes and made every start all season long, that deserves to be honored. But if he has a bad one or if it's kind of a a mediocre one and he still ends up the ERA over four, it does kind of sully what looked like a good season a while back. Mackenzie Gore at times looked like clearly the best pitcher on the team, but just didn't sustain that enough consistency from start to start. I hope next year, one of those guys in the rotation puts it together all the way through start to finish, and it's a clear-cut case for one of them to win the award. Hey, are you a law firm partner stuck on an underperforming team while the rest of the competitors are spending big and winning big? Well, 
Unlike Mackenzie Gore and Capert Ruiz, you have options. You don't have to stay on your 60-win team. Nats Chat sponsor Mason Kalfis and his team specialize in placing partners and associates at medium-sized and large law firms in Washington, D.C. and across the country. Staying at a firm too long is often a recipe for being underpaid. Explore your options today with Mason Kalfis. Call Mason today at 202-486-3535. That number again, 202-486-3535. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I had elbow surgery last summer and, you know, I rehabbed that all off season and we had a setback in spring training, which was the timing of it was tough because I was, I was pretty far along in, in that process. I was doing really well. The season already was looking very different than I had hoped it would. I mentioned Josiah Gray winning the Good Guy Award for this year. The man who has won the Good Guy Award for the Nats the most in the history of that award is Sean Doolittle. He won that award in each of three consecutive seasons, 2018 through 2020. And we got the news on Friday morning, Sean, via social media, announcing his retirement. The team, shortly before this game on Friday night, held a retirement press conference for Sean Doolittle. So Sean Doolittle this season, what was his age 36 season, was attempting to make it back to the majors off a left elbow injury that led to him in July 2022 undergoing an internal brace procedure as opposed to Tommy John surgery to repair a tear in his left UCL. Then we this past June learned that Doolittle had a right knee injury, which he at this retirement presser on Friday evening revealed was a torn patella tendon in his right knee. That is not your uh, normal basic right knee injury. That is a significant knee injury, a torn patella tendon. So he was in the midst of a second stint with the Nats. As you may recall, the Nats, March 2022, announced that they had agreed on a contract with Doolittle as a free agent. One year, $1.5 million. He last season totaled just six games, but he over those six games was really good. Five and a third scoreless and walkless innings, six strikeouts, retired 16 of the 17 batters he faced. And what ends up being the case is that those were his final major league regular season innings. The Nats this past November 6th announced that they had agreed to re-sign Doolittle to a minor league contract with an invite to major league spring training, but he this season never made it back to the majors. But he certainly goes down as one of the best relievers for the Nats since the franchise moved to D.C. I think you have to give that 
championship belt to Tyler Clippard. I think it's hard to argue Doolittle was a better, more productive reliever for the Nats than Clippard was. But Doolittle uh, certainly is in the conversation. Very good postseason pitcher. Very good actually over two postseasons for the Nats, 2017 and 2019. And a guy like we talked about earlier, especially with his personality and presence, is going to be fondly remembered by Nats fans for a long time. Yeah, on the list of most popular nationals ever, I think is fair to say. And it's a combination of what he did on the field and the way he conducted himself off the field. And I thought it was interesting he talked about in his press conference with us that, yes, he had a big influence in the community and off the field and, you know, was one of the best quotes and interviews that we've ever had and really set about to try to make a difference off the field. But he acknowledged that that really was only possible when it was in tandem with his performance. If he was not the performer that he was, he's not afforded the platform that he wound up having to do all the things that mattered to him off the field. He's just another guy trying to make a difference in the world if that's the case. And instead, because of his performance as a big league pitcher for a good team and in big moments for a good team, I think that allowed him to have some extra clout to be able to do the kinds of things that he wanted to do with his life away from baseball. And so you put that all together, and and I think he goes down really as a very popular and very important figure in the team's history. Really, the only thing that hurt him was that he missed time with injuries. And it was usually a little nagging stuff that got to him. This stuff here at the end, of course, was much more significant and wound up bringing an end to his career. But I mean, look at the numbers with the Nationals, and it's part of five seasons he was with them. It's a 292 ERA, a 1007 whip, 75 saves, which is third behind Chad Cordero and Drew Storen for the Nationals. To me, the two things that stand out, first of all, what he did in 2019, I don't think this should be overlooked. His totals for that season didn't look great, but he was overworked out of necessity. The first half of that season, they had nobody else in that bullpen who could be trusted in any situation of consequence. And this is the team, remember, that started 19 and 31. They could have been a lot worse than 19 and 31, if not for what Doolittle did during that time. And as they started to get better, he was integral in closing out a whole lot of games over the course of that summer, often going four outs, five outs, six outs, because they needed it. Now, what that wound up doing is it wore him down to the point that he started to struggle in July and August, and then actually went on the IL. And in that time, they traded for Daniel Hudson, who took over the closer's role. And by the time Doolittle returned in September, he had a couple of weeks to get back into the swing of things and then go into the playoffs, and he was no longer the closer. But he was still remarkably good for them come that October. And you combine that with what he did in 17 in the division series against the Cubs. And in 12 postseason games for the Nationals, he had a 135 ERA, 0.600 whip, 12 strikeouts, only one walk. And the key stat of them all, he never once blew a lead in any game that he pitched in in the postseason. That's all you could ever ask for from a reliever in the most important games. And so for everything else that he did, and there's a lot of great stuff he did on and off the field, I think sometimes we don't appreciate how lights out he was at the most important moments and how influential he was and important to them ultimately winning a championship. 
He really, in a lot of ways, saved them in two years in which their bullpen was horrendous, 2017 and 2019. And to me, that's six in one, half dozen in the other in terms of which bullpen was worse because each bullpen was so bad. And the 2017 season was basically saved by those two in-season trades that brought over Sean Doolittle, Ryan Madsen, and Brandon Kinsler. And the bullpen went from a real weakness to actually something that you felt pretty good about going into that postseason. And then you just outlined what went down in 2019. It's amazing looking back on especially the 2017 team. That team went 97 and 65, even with the horrendous bullpen. Imagine if that team had had even a decent bullpen. Forget about a lights out bullpen. How many wins are we talking about? Because I remember that season and talking about that team and like every game, the bullpen was blowing leads and it was just a matter of did the Nats overcome that or did they not overcome that? But I mean, what are we talking about? 105, 110 wins if, if the bullpen is decent in 2017. So something to think about with, uh, you know, Nats history and what could have been in that season. But yeah, I mean, I, you know, I said Clipper to me is the best reliever in Nats history. I think he is just because of the volume of work. I mean, Sean Doolittle over two stints with the Nats, 148 regular season innings. Clippard over his time with the Nats, 469 regular season innings. And actually an overall ERA that was lower, 272 versus Doolittle's 292. But if you're talking just about closers, Sean Doolittle, is he not the best closer in Nats history? I mean, I'd put him ahead of Drew Storen. Chad Cordero was good, but I think Doolittle lasted longer and you could argue was better. You know, Cordero was great for that one season. We don't want to take anything away from him there. But uh, yeah, I mean, I think Doolittle deserves a lot of praise. And, you know, I liked what he said during the presser. He's done playing baseball. He's not done with baseball. I don't know what exactly he wants to do. I think if you're the Nats, you want to keep him around in some capacity if possible, because that's someone who I think could do a lot of good for you as an organization. Yeah, absolutely. Now, the good news is he and his wife, Aaron, are staying in D.C. This is their home. They want to keep this their home for a long time. Now, it affords opportunities to do a lot of stuff outside of baseball as well, which they are both interested in, though he shot down this idea that Davey Martinez actually threw out earlier and they said, like, he could be mayor if he wanted to. When somebody asked Sean about that, he laughed and he said, I got one vote, I guess. So (laughs) I don't No, I don't think so. No, I don't think so. I appreciate the sentiment. Trying to give a straight answer. Uh, No, I don't. No, I don't think so. Has very strong political beliefs, and I'm sure he's going to find ways to try to make a difference in the world in areas that match up with what his beliefs are. But I don't think politics itself is where he's going to go. And and to be honest, he probably would make a terrible politician because he's too honest. You know, (laughs) he's he's too good. He's too he's unable to like just speak the company line. Like he's going to tell you the truth and what he honestly feels about things. And that may not work in the world of politics. I do think he has something to offer to baseball. He wants to do it. If he really wanted to do it, he'd be fantastic in the media, as we know. I just don't know that he will view that as a full-time job that fulfills his life enough for what he wants to do. He can kind of do almost anything he wants, I think, at this point, but he will have a relationship with the Nationals, no doubt, whether that's you know showing up to spring training or every once in a while here in D.C. and helping guys out or doing community events with them. He really could go a lot of different ways with this, and I hope he ultimately finds something that fulfills him and makes him happy. I don't think Sean Doolittle is going to be a stranger. And, and that's nice to see because so many players who've come through here over the years, most of them end up leaving and going somewhere else and living somewhere else other than Ryan Zimmerman. I guess Joe Gonzalez still lives here. 
most of them move somewhere else and they come back every once in a while for something, but they're not regular presences around the ballpark. And you see it with other teams where on any random night you look up and they show on sitting in the stands or in a, in a booth somewhere, some great players from those teams who have made that their permanent home. It would be nice if more guys ultimately choose to stay in DC and really establish some longstanding tradition and feel like you're connecting past generations with future generations of the ball club. And Sean Doolittle, like Ryan Zimmerman, a product of the University of Virginia. So you have that going for Doolittle as well. Former first baseman for the Cavaliers, let's not forget, and drafted as a first baseman. And it was an injury that convinced the A's to ask him if he wanted to try to pitch again. And within a year, he's pitching in the big leagues after that conversion and look at the career he had. That's a, a, a subtle little thing that most people don't remember. He was like the cleanup hitting first baseman at UVA and wound up as an all-star reliever in the big leagues. Yeah, that is remarkable. But, you know, he has been a part of this area's sports scene for years, you know, going back to Virginia. Now, I know, you know, Charlottesville, Virginia is not around the corner, but it's considered part of like the mid-Atlantic region, gets covered as a pseudo-local school, and Doolittle was a part of uh, UVA. You tell us what you think. Hit us up on Twitter at Nats underscore chat. You can email the show, NatsChatPodcast at gmail.com, uh, including if you would like to sponsor the program this season or next season, hit up Tim Shover, see what we can do for you, Nats Chat Podcast at gmail.com. Check out our website to natschatpodcast.com in which you can buy a Nats Chat Podcast t-shirt. Don't forget about our Nats Chat Podcast party coming up on Friday evening, October 13th at Walters, beginning at 6.30. All Nationals radio highlights on Nats Chat are courtesy of 106.7 The Fan. A thank you to Tim Newmark for the Nats Chat podcast music. Visit timnewmark.com. Don't forget, no Nats game on Saturday, a day-night doubleheader on Sunday, 1.35 p.m. and 6.35 p.m. for the final two games of this four-game series against the Braves. For Mark Zuckerman, I'm Al Galdi. We thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next time on the Nats Chat podcast. Two little sets. He kicks, he delivers, and a swing and a fly ball left center field. Robles to his right on the run there. He's calling for it, and he makes the catch. And a curly W's in the books. The Nationals take game one of the 2019 World Series. Sean Doolittle with a 1-2-3 bottom of the ninth inning. He retires all four men that he faces. And the Nationals on the field to celebrate a victory. Our final score, the Washington Nationals 5, the Houston Astros 4.